Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, July 6th, 2010. It's our first normal day of broadcasting since last week. Oh, this is going to be all kinds of fun. All right. Looking over my program notes here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of bizarre things being said in the name of Christ, and they're they're coming from all sectors. In fact, over the weekend, I was uh, listening to the latest installment of the White Horse Inn uh, radio program. This is it's uh, 30 minutes uh, once a week. If you uh, don't subscribe to this podcast, it's worth subscribing to. And uh, you can get to it at whitehorseinn.org, whitehorseinn.org. And uh, we broadcast here at Pirate Christian Radio their their, podcast. past episodes it's kind of like um old reruns of i love lucy we we do that here for the white horse inn so it's white horse inn classic on a daily basis here at uh, pirate christian radio and uh, the, the this the current uh, edition has an interview with oz guinness and oz guinness states in that interview you've got you've got to hear it if you haven't heard it you need to go and find this and listen to it he states in that interview that evangelicals in the United States are becoming liberals. <laughs> I've been saying this for a long time, but then again, I don't have the credentials that Oz Guinness has. And so when Oz Guinness weighs in and says that this is the case, it, this is big news. I mean, send up a flare. The Titanic is sinking. <laughs> Something is seriously going wrong here. And uh, and so what we do here, we've noticed this trend here ourselves at Fighting for the Faith. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we do the sermon reviews and we compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because we've noticed the major shift that's been occurring in Christianity. Now, the sad part is, is that much of the shift that's been going on is a re- is a valid reaction against the excesses of the culture warring that has taken place as you know especially in the christian right and when you turn christianity into uh, you know basically culture warring or 
redefining the gospel in such a way that you're basically telling everyone to pull themselves up by their moral bootstraps and then God will bless us. Well, you're just preaching the law without the gospel. And as a result of it, you know, as sure as night follows day, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction uh, when it comes to things like that. And so you cre- you create the next generation of people who abandon Christianity. I mean, and what they're really abandoning is legalistic pietism. They're They're abandoning this idea that somehow they've got the inside track with God because well they don't smoke they don't uh, they don't go to r rated movies they watch the correct television shows uh they don't listen to secular music they've compl- you know it's <sighs> yeah it you know it, it, those things not being the fruit of the spirit you know and you know, somehow people think that they're they've earned a, you know god's favor by by following a particular program the problem is is that they're exchanging one form of legalistic pietism for another form it, the, the form on the right uh, you know gets replaced by the form on the left and you know and it still comes down to those two really important verses uh, or things that Jesus says loving god and loving neighbor they think that's the gospel it ain't that's the law and so the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins. That's a regenerative word, if you would. And as a result of it, people try to please God based upon their stark and naked obedience. And uh, it just doesn't work that way. You can't please God using your stark, naked obedience. Uh, you're covered in filth and muck and, and dead in trespasses and sins. The last thing you want to do is appear before the throne room of God uh, in your stark naked obedience. You 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 won't um survive the event. But the gospel tells us that in Christ we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as if we're the ones who lived it. That whole part about Jesus being sinless, the important part about that is, is that Jesus' sinless life is given to us, well, like a robe. Or to use another metaphor that Jesus uh, used in his parables, it's like a, a wedding robe, the wedding clothes put over us that covers our sin and muck and shame and we're and we're clothed instead with the righteousness of Christ and God is gracious and favorable toward, toward us not because of what we have done because we can't earn God's favor instead God is gracious and merciful and and everything towards us that's beneficial on account of Christ plain and simple so, you know, what's happened, you know, we've noticed the drift in the United States and uh, in other places in the world. It comes on our radar screen here at Fighting for the Faith, and we comment on it, and and we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. And uh, it, so, anyway, you get what's going on. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. <clears throat> well, hey, uh, do you suffer from insomnia? Well, good news. Uh, Patricia King has uh, posted a brand new video. If you happen to be a woman... And you suffer from insomnia. <laughs> I, you know what's funny? Prior to watch, yeah, after listening to this video, I, I, prior to coming on the air, I uh, just did some research. How many Americans have insomnia? Sixty million Americans have insomnia. So I, <laughs> this is like so unuseful. 
Uh, we're, so Patricia King is talking about insomnia, that we, and then uh, I got a news story from Christianity Today. This is kind of laying a little bit of foundation work uh, about a radio station who's pulled out of the, you know, in support f- uh, for Life Fest uh, uh, because they're bringing Jim Wallace in to be a speaker. And so what we're going to do here is I'm going to read that story, and with this in mind, I have uh, uh, I have contacted Sojourners and uh, Jim Wallace's people, and inv- and have invited Jim Wallace to come on uh, Fighting for the Faith, and uh, it, it, I'm hoping that he comes on the program. I think it would be great. Uh, uh, Ingrid Schleter of Crosstalk uh, had originally uh, landed the interview with him, and then pulled out. And so um, I'm going to I, – I've stepped up the plate and said, well, I'll interview him and we'll see if uh, they take me up on my offer. Now, that not sure what his, uh, uh, what his schedule is like. I've asked for 30 to 45 minutes with uh, Jim Wallace, and, uh, and I don't know if he's capable of uh, actually doing the interview this week. If not – uh, it may be next week if they if they agree to the interview. So uh, I'll keep you all posted, but we'll we'll talk about that today. And um, and then I've got two things I want to do today, but uh, it's depending on time. Uh, Rob Bell, um, this, something came to my attention. Rob Bell last year tweeted out his version of the Beatitudes, and I think I want to take a look at those. And then I've got uh, audio from a video, a recent video, with uh, John Ortberg interviewing Dallas Willard at a Catalyst conference. Uh, Catalyst is one of these uh, seeker-driven, the new liberals, if you would, uh, the uh, the uh, seeker-driven leadership conference. And so I'm going to be tuning in uh, to that and commenting because i got to tell you, I mean, after listening to the audio from that video, I... (laughs) Absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Dallas Willard and his uh, buddy in crime, uh, John Ortberg, are up to no good, and they're they're not teaching the biblical gospel. But uh, you got to put your uh, your Bible ears on. Well, actually, put your Bible pants on and listen with your ears and your mind, and uh, we'll exercise some biblical discernment as we compare what they say to the Word of God as it pertains to grace and the kingdom of God. And then. Uh, in the second hour, we've got a special treat for you. In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the AT. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the A-Team, uh, if you're not familiar, the A-Team, they, it's a... It's a blockbuster movie this summer and uh we've got a uh, sermon review in uh, hour number two based on the uh, the latest a-team movie from the journey uh, pastor carrick thomas is preaching a sermon on the a-team because you know the bible is just full of car chases and rocket launches and explosions and AK-47s and machine gun fire and, and you know, because the Bible reads just like a total dude movie, man. Okay, done. <laughs> so that's that's my teaser for what's coming up in hour number two. A sermon based on the A-team. Ay, 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 ay. Okay. <laughs> 
So with that, uh, we're going to dive into the program proper. Please feel free to make yourself comfortable. Your listener experience, it's, it's absolutely vital and critical to me as your uh, radio host uh, that your listener experience is positive and a good one. And that means make yourself comfortable. If, of course, if you would like to listen while exercising, mowing the lawn, or whatever activities, we do not have a problem with that. We understand that most of you listening uh, listen on demand at your leisure. And so, you know, but if you have the opportunity to kick up your feet, relax, and enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we don't have a problem with that. Yes, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind, not only was Jesus a drinker, Okay, but even the Corinthian church, well, they were told not to drink uh, even after they were getting drunk on the communion wine. It's hard to get drunk on non-alcoholic communion wine. You'd have to drink a lot of it in order to get drunk. I think you'd blow up first, but that's a different story. So keep in mind, the biblical prohibition has to do with using God's gracious gift of adult beverages to an excess and getting drunk. So keep that in mind. With that, we're going to dive into the program proper, which means that uh, we have to play our Patricia King music. Ah, yes. Do you suffer from insomnia? Well, if you do, if you're one of the 30 million American women who suffers from insomnia, this special message from Patricia King, directly from God, might be for you. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I, I crack up every time I hear this woman. Anyway, here's Patricia King on a word from God regarding insomnia. I see um, a woman who is tormented because of lack of sleep. And you're so anxious because night after night you can't sleep and then you go to lie down and then your mind tells you you can't sleep you can't sleep and it's this voice inside of you saying you can't sleep you can't sleep and you're just tormented by that voice well i bind that voice right now in the name of jesus but the other thing that i believe god's saying for you that'll be a key is don't let the fear of not having sleep bother you yeah yeah D don't don't let that yeah you know, the devil, he's just a harasser. And if he can harass... I'm sorry, but uh, in, in <clears throat> I hate to interrupt here. Um, it's come to my attention that uh, when we talk about the word harassment, um, that um, it is inappropriate to pronounce it that way. Therefore, um, because it, pronouncing it that way may actually further aggravate um, the problem. And so in light of that, uh, we will always be referring to that word in... in Quoting it and, and, and pronouncing it harassment. Just want to let you know. He will. But if you call him at his game and you just, you just take your stand, he will leave. And what's coming to me is the scripture in Isaiah 40 where it says the Lord, he doesn't slumber or sleep. You know, and so God has insomnia. Is that what you're saying, Patricia? It's like you can, you can draw on his strength. Even when you don't, I mean, if he's not sleeping, don't you think he'd be tired by now? Don't sleep. And so you could read a book or you could pray, read your Bible, you know, do whatever, make good use of the time when you can't sleep, but just determine that you're not going to be tormented anymore. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I just cut off that torment now. Ooh, that, I mean, <clears throat> now, if you're confused as to which per particular person she was talking to, I've got a, a, a story here from uh, uh, National Public Radio. 
entitled Can't Sleep. Neither can 60 million other Americans. <laughs> 60 million other Americans. So, so potentially, Patricia King was getting a word for maybe as many as 30 million women. I'm kind of going with the idea that half of these would be women. Maybe not. I, let me read the story. It gets into the... Um, it, it may be actually, it might actually be worse for women. Scientists know relatively little about how chronic sleepiness works or why it is dis it disproportionately affects women and people over the age of 65. Roughly 60 million Americans are affected by the sleep dis disorder each year, and scientists disagree on the best ways to treat it. Well, apparently, you know, you just need to talk to Patricia King. She just bound it. I mean, you know, I bind it and boom, you know, that that just poof, you know, just uh, I, I'm sure that solved the problem there. But, you know, it sounded like she was talking to a specific, you know, oh, what a ridiculous thing. Anyway, that was a public service. <laughs> yeah. 60 million potential people you know, um, disproportionately affecting women could have potentially, yeah, this was no special. I mean, seriously. I mean, this would be like me going, you know, I, I'm getting a word from God. Oh, here it is. I've got a special word. There's somebody out there. Um, it's a guy, and he's got a runny nose. Yes, yes, you are suffering from the cold. See, if, and see, God right now has made it so that you turned into this program at just the right time so that you can get this special special message from God through me to you, uh, the one, uh, the guy who uh, the, is listening right now who has a runny nose, and oh, wait, wait, you've got a scratchy th throat, and, and it's a sore throat, and your ears are congested too. Yes, yes, I have a special word for you. And I bind the stuffy nose and the itchy, watery eyes in the name of Jesus. And see, now, now send me money. <sighs> she's always, uh, I, she's the gift that keeps on giving Patricia King. You just gotta, you know, thanks, Patricia. Really, really appreciate it. Okay, switching gears here. From Christianity Today, the headline reads, Station Pulls Out Over Jim Wallace. Now, have I mentioned that I'm a, yeah, I did mention, uh, Jim Wallace, I've asked him, I've talked with his folk today to see if uh, he'd be willing to come on uh, Fighting for the Faith. And the purpose of that interview would be, well, to ask me to ask him some theological questions to get an idea of, you know, whether or not the controversy regarding Jim Wallace is warranted. What is this theology? What does he believe, teach, and confess? What does he think social justice is? By the way, um, folks, if uh, you do not subscribe to my uh, my blog, The Letter of Mark, yeah, it's the Letter of Mark, M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S, letterofmark.us. Um, I've started a, a series there called Social Justice Jesus. And uh, and the best way I can describe it is, is that, uh, let's just say I was inspired uh, by something I saw an emergent doing and thought I would answer back. And so what I've done is I've taken different paintings, pictures, portraits, 
of Jesus in action during his ministry, and I've poured into uh, the, into Jesus, put words in his mouth that are more in tuned with um, social justice uh, vis-a-vis those who buy into the Hegelian uh, liberation theology, social justice type Jesus. And so uh, it, I, I got to tell you, it, it kind of is jarring to, I mean, I, I'm the one who put these things together. And uh, right now, currently, we've got three of them published, and I think I'm up to 10 of them that I've created. So there's 10 in the series so far. But uh, uh, only three of them are published, so this is going to be an ongoing serial, if you would, at Letter of Mark. Please uh, grab those and and forward them on to your friends, because uh, they kind of make an important point. Anyway, um, Jim Wallace, uh, let me read this story here. From uh, this is by uh, Trevor Pursaud uh, of uh, Christianity Today. The uh, the story reads: Life Fest 2010. A Christian music and preaching festival has one less sponsor today. A Christian radio station felt the need to pull out because the festival featured Sojourner's founder Jim Wallace on its slate of speakers. The festival, scheduled for July 7th through the 11th in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, boasts more than 150 Christian artists, speakers, and comedians. Wallace will be Friday night's keynote speaker Over 15,000 people are expected to attend. But this morning, the Oshkosh Northwestern reported that radio station Q90FM had pulled its sponsorship because of of a fundamental disagreement on the wisdom of bringing Mr. Wallace to LifeFest. Q90FM posted a statement on their website explaining that the station's leadership felt Wallace's political views, particularly those regarding social justice, to be humanistic, and that Wallace and Sojourners are seeking an unholy alliance between the church and the government. Now, this is interesting. This is very, this is very interesting. Now, Q90FM uh, apparently is a Christian station, and they think that his politics are too humanistic. Now, my question would be, what about his theology? What is his theology humanistic? I mean, so, I, I mean, these are questions that I want to ask Jim Wallace personally. And so, I mean, this is one of those things where I've read enough uh, Jim Wallace in his blog that I have a, I, I, have, I think I have a radar fix on where he is. And what's interesting, and this ought to cue you into where I think he really is at, uh, Wallace's politics are neither traditional right nor traditional left. And I think people in both the traditional right and the traditional left uh, might have some issues with Jim Wallace's uh, ideas. But uh, then again, I really want to uh, bring him on and ask him these questions personally. I want I want to know what you know what it is that he believes, teaches, and confess. I mean, he's out there supposedly. He's a Christian speaker who is now on the docket for Christian music festivals when they when they don't do music. Up there in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So um, anyway, um, let's see here. Let me continue. Quote, um, we agree with what is commanded through Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that it is our responsibility to take care of widows and orphans and any who are unable to care for themselves. The statement read, we recognize that individually and as the body of Christ, we are not doing all that we could as Jesus taught us. 
But we do not believe the solution is the church partnering with the government in this endeavor. Wallace, who served in the White House Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in 2009, has worked with Presidents Bush and Obama since 2000 on partnering faith-based initiatives with government programs. Quote, I was an early supporter of the initiative because I believed that partnerships between the faith community and the government in alleviating poverty were both necessary and appropriate within the framework of the Constitution, he wrote for the Huffington Post in 2008. Q90FM says that the government involvement in faith groups and private charitable initiatives could inhibit faith groups from their primary mission. Quote, the movement in our nation toward the forced redistribution of wealth through taxation, by the way, this is Marxist socialism, ensures this. When the government controls where the money goes, freedom to express the gospel of Jesus Christ will eventually be eliminated legally as it has with every church and state merger since 371 AD, the statement read. Other religious leaders have come out against Wallace's presence at the festival. Quote, I do not believe that this is a man that should be emulated by young people, said the Reverend Kate, uh, Kathy Rose, <sighs> Reverend Kathy, of Evangelical Worship Center in Menasha, Wisconsin, she told the Northwestern. Kathy Rose, Kathy, Pastrix Kathy Rose doesn't see, by, this is interesting. I told you that I know enough about what Jim Wallace is all about that I don't think he, the traditional left is in favor of him either. And Pastrix Kathy Rose, <clears throat> what does that tell you? Some Christians on the web have been more strident. Uh, quote, travesty at Life Fest. Uh, Parents, don't send your kids, declared Lighthouse Trails on their blog on June 19th. Quote, let's just say that progress has been made since the time that guy, uh, that, that guys like Wallace hung out in camouflage attire at backwater conferences held at rundown hotels, wrote Ingrid Schleter on the Crosstalk blog. The festival says, uh, the festival blog says, Life Fest organizers have received several calls and emails from parents and pastors asking about Wallace after an area pastor sent a letter to churches, ministries, and individuals about the situation. In a post written on Father's Day, they announced that they would leave Wallace on the schedule. Bob Lenz, president of Life Promotions, which puts on Life Fest, told the Northwestern that they invited Wallace in order to promote dialogue. Quote, we think Wallace, although there may be differences in opinion on some of his politics, is a great person to listen to and has a real message for the church and for kids alike. Okay. And there's an update. <clears throat> Wallace's comments in reaction to LifeFest controversy appeared this morning in the Appleton Post-Crescent. Quote, we believe the church and the government are able to best fulfill their roles when they function separately and apart from institutional intrusion, Wallace said. However, that does not mean that we believe in separation of values from public life. Uh, though they say they have had two conversations with Wallace, Q90FM stands by its statement. So that's the that's the controversy in a nutshell. And uh, I, I read that and kind of bring you up to speed so that you know what the controversy is and um, and understand that I have talked today with uh, Jim Wallace's uh, folk, uh, his media folk, and uh, and I've put in a formal request 
and uh, asked him to come on Fighting for the Faith to discuss this issue and a few others so we can hear from him personally what his uh, you know, what his theology is, what you know, what he believes, teaches, and confesses. So uh, pray to that end that we get the opportunity to have uh, Jim Wallace on Fighting for the Faith. And those of you who listen to this program with any regularity know that, uh, that uh, when it comes to interviewing folks whom I disagree with, Jim Wallace would definitely fall into that camp, that, uh, that I don't uh, interview them with the hopes of debating them, but instead asking questions that will help us understand what they believe, what their doctrine is, what their theology is, so that you can compare what they say in the name of God to the Word of God. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing. 
Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven bounty points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of... Giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Warning. If you think social justice is done by the government in the name of Christianity, you don't understand the gospel. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us. <laughs> That's what you do. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will find two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. 
when you join our crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And the important part about that is is that uh, by once we achieve our goal of a 1,000 listeners who've joined our crew, we have a little bit of ways to go still. Uh, then, then on a monthly basis, that'll make it so that we can meet our budgeted expenses. Now, <clears throat> we're going to have to raise the number above a thousand uh, as we get into our, our new fiscal year, which we're on a bizarre calendar, by the way, which is coming up in the fall. And the reason why is well because Pirate Christian Radio is very popular, and as a result of it, um, our our broadcasting fees have gone up as our audience has grown. So this is good stuff. And so anyway. So, but, but the more people that we have that join our crew and we have that ongoing cash flow, it basically makes it so that it takes out the peaks and the valleys in our, in, in our um, financial support so that month after month after month we have some consistent income so that we can pay our bills. Mucho importante. Of course, if you would like to specify a specific amount that you would like to contribute to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button on our homepage. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, I'm going to save the Rob Bell beatitude thing for tomorrow. So with that, um, just this just went up a, a few days ago at the Catalyst uh, Vimeo uh, webpage. Vimeo is like a YouTube-like uh, service, but it allows you to post uh, videos that are a lot longer than 10 minutes, whereas YouTube kind of limits you to only 10 minutes. And uh, this is from the Catalyst West uh, 2010 conference, and this is uh, John Ortberg and um, Dallas Willard. Listen carefully. You're going to hear a false gospel, and, we're, and you get your Bible out, too, while you're at it. We're going to need to unpack a few things here, so... With that in mind, here is Dallas Willard and John Ortberg. All right, Dallas, uh, we're meeting together, and there's an awful lot of folks here in their 20s and 30s who are leading and will be leading and shaping the church. Yeah, that's right. A, lot, a bunch of leaders, a bunch of them that will be shaping and leading the church. So I want you to keep this in mind. What you're about to hear is being taught at and said to a bunch of seeker-driven leaders. And what's the seeker-driven movement? It's the it's a it basically a new liberalism. That's what this is. Uh, for some time to come, you've been in the church for 70 years. Um, what has the church not been getting right? that you think perhaps God is calling this generation of church leaders to get right that needs to be gotten right. Okay, so what has the church not been getting right? Listen carefully. Well, of course, there are a lot of dimensions to the church, primarily speaking about the one that you and I probably know best. Uh, for various reasons, their problem is with their message. What is the central message? Okay, so according to Dallas Willard, the, 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 what the church has been getting wrong is the central message of the Christian faith. Okay? What's the church been saying that's been wrong, Dallas? And the inability to make touch with what Jesus himself presented as the central message undermines 
all of the efforts of the church. Because unless you understand that Jesus invites us through faith in him, that means putting your confidence in him, to actually live in the kingdom of God now, there will not be a basis for discipleship and transformation. Now, when I was growing up in the church, the central message was real clear. It was the gospel. And what we thought of as the gospel was, it was the announcement of the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Okay, did, did you hear that? Uh, that's John Ortberg. And by the way, that's a straw man. He said, when I was growing up, we were told that the central message of Christianity was the gospel. And how was the gospel defined? By the way, the Bible defines the gospel as the announcement that Christ was crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification. See 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. If you have any confusion about what the gospel is, that's it. And so the, 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 what did John Ortberg just do here? He created a straw man. The central message of the Christian faith, and I, I dare defy any of you to find me a church where, really, for the past 50, 60 years, they've, the, the gospel is the, uh, is the announcement of the minimal requirements necessary to get into the kingdom of heaven. Um, having grown up in the greater American, you know, the greater churches in America uh, from the time I was in junior high, I have yet to run across this church. Churches uh, even of basically every stripe that I've been a part of, and I've had I've been to quite a few different types of churches, have not just said, well, we're going to sit here and, you know, we're just going to, well, now that we've preached the gospel and we all know what the minimal requirements are now to, to get into heaven, we're just going to sit around and, you know, just wait. Yeah. Um, anyone ready to go to heaven yet? Well, any, anyone ready to die? No, not yet. H how many more minutes before... Anyone, anyone close to die? Serious. I don't know any church that did that. Every single sermon that I've ever heard has touched on sound biblical doctrine as it relates to eternal truths and truths and how these eternal truths impact our daily life. The gospel impacts my my role as a father. It impacts my role as a as a radio host it's impacted my role as a, as a husband and and as a son as a student as seriously this is a complete complete straw man it's really easy to beat up on a straw man by the way they don't punch back yeah right it's kind of like passing the written part of the driver's test You get three of them wrong, you have to do it again. Yeah. Except now you don't get to do it again on yeah. this one. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion, and there is a lot going on right now, about the gospel in our day. And um, there, I don't think there's anybody who, more than you, has helped us to think again. Really not in a new way, really in a more biblical way. Of now, hold on a second here. Dallas Willard, in case you're not familiar with him, he and Richard Foster basically um, are the unholy duality when it comes to uh, resuscitating and breathing life into and repackaging 
Roman Catholic monastic mysticism and basically passing it off to the American consumers in the church as, quote, spiritual disciplines. Supposedly, if you just practice these spiritual disciplines, then God will say, oh, look, you're practicing those disciplines, so I'm going to use that time that you're doing these things to transform your life. Uh, what are the disciplines? Silence, solitude, uh, practicing the presence of God. It's it's mysticism. You know, that's the, a basic form of it. The, these are not the biblical means of grace, by the way. Just want to point that out. But let's, you know, but since Dallas practices mysticism, let's find out what he thinks on the subject. About what the gospel is. So if the gospel of Jesus isn't primarily, here's how to make sure you get into heaven when you die. What is Jesus' gospel? It's how to get into heaven before you die. Did you hear that? Backing up the tape, backing up the tape. Listen again. Really not in a new way, really in a more biblical way about what the gospel is. So if the gospel of Jesus isn't primarily, here's how to make sure you get into heaven when you die. What is Jesus' gospel? It's how to get into heaven before you die. So the gospel is the good news of how to get into heaven before you die. Really? I can't wait to hear how he backs this up from the Bible. That's it. That's why the New Testament, for example, routinely treats you as, you've, as if you have already died. is because you have made a transition from a life on your own to a life that God himself is living in his kingdom. So you get to be a part of that. And so when Jesus comes, you know, any New Testament scholar, I believe, would tell you, what did Jesus preach? They would say the kingdom of God. That's not quite right, because what he preached was the availability of the kingdom of God. Really, Jesus taught the availability of the kingdom of God. <laughs> By the way, if you have your Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 11. I want to, t want to take a look at some points here. We got to do some work, got to do some cleaning up, because uh, things are not right here. Hebrews chapter 11. Let me check my notes here. Okay. <clears throat> oh yeah. Okay. We're gonna look at verse. Uh, we're gonna look at verse 13. But I'm going to uh, back it up a little bit for. Uh, here we go. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I'm gonna start at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of, of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Okay. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire, uh, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Um, does this sound like uh, faith is all about having heaven right now here on earth? I mean, we do understand that the Apostle Paul was beheaded for his testimony to the gospel. Um, and he was flogged and beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and persecuted and arrested and spent years in prisons. You know, Roman prisons were not exactly the state-of-the-art facilities that we have nowadays. Uh, they make Mexican prisons look, well, just plain like, you know, Club Med. Uh, was Paul experiencing <clears throat> this, you know, heaven on earth? Peter, you know, he was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. You know, you think about all, you know, you think about the Christians who were persecuted even to this day. Where's their heaven on earth stuff? Yeah, I, I don't think he's correctly teaching uh, the, the biblical gospel at this point. And of course, the thing that's being mocked and ridiculed is the biblical gospel by Ortberg and Willard here. To everyone, wherever they were and whoever they were. And uh, so he announces this and by his own presence makes it available. And once you get that idea, then you read the gospel and you say, hey, that's what's happening. Now, make this concrete for us for a moment, because we know the language of the kingdom is Jesus' language. But we don't have, you know, kings in this country. We don't use that kind of imagery much. So just in a real concrete way... I know when you say you can get into heaven before you die, you're not being glib about that. No, you have something all. very real in right. mind. Help us understand, what is that reality? The reality is God in action. Like you, we do better maybe with government, though that's not good <laughs> either. Yeah. But, for example, we sitting here are all experiencing the effects of the government of the United States. And the effects of the kingdom of God is God in action. And he acts through all of his instrumentalities. But the main thing to understand is God acts in relationship with us. We can call that the presence of God with us, we the Holy Spirit, the power of the word. But the important thing is to understand the kingdom of God is God in action. That happens to turn out to be exactly the same thing as grace. What? Grace is the kingdom of God in action. That's what grace is. Now, he's doing a very postmodern, almost mysticism kind of thing here. He's switching definitions on you. Pay close attention. We'll, un we'll unpack this here in a second. So grace now becomes a part of our lives, and we experience it with us by faith. We have to learn how to do this because we're usually in charge of what's happening so grace is becoming a thing now and we have to learn how to turn loose of that and how to live with god being in charge and we can do that uh, let me pause you there for a moment too some of us were talking yesterday i grew up with the idea that grace was just a synonym for the forgiveness of sins yeah just a synonym for the grace is just a synonym for the forgiveness of sins it's just 
Let me, uh, if you have your Bible, flip over to the New Testament, Romans chapter 3. Let me point this out. Romans chapter 3, we'll start at verse 19. For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So let me see. All fall short of the all, all all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by God's grace as a gift. Okay. Now this is interesting. Okay. Keep this in mind. Faith has an object. Faith has an object. You know. So if you have faith, you have to have it in something, or it has to focus in on something. I have faith that my truck is going to start when I put the key in the ignition. That's why I hop into the driver's seat and put the key in the ignition and turn it. I trust that it's going to turn on. So in in that sentence, my truck would be the object of my faith. It's like eyeballs. Okay. You whatever you're focusing in on. So faith always has an object. The the object of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ. Okay, We have faith in him. We trust in him. We trust in his mercy. We trust in his grace. So grace is a little bit different than faith in this sense. Grace tells us it's about the object of our faith, which would be Christ, that he's gracious and merciful and kind. So grace by itself, if you detach it from the the thing from which it emanates from, you, you turn it into something that it's not. Okay, so if I think of it this way, if I said that I'm going to be gracious and kind to you all and I'm going to offer this edition of Fighting for the Faith completely for free, you think, uh, well, you already get it for free. I, that's beside the point. Just work with the metaphor. Okay, I'm going to be gracious. Who's the one being gracious? Me. If you were to download it for free, you're downloading it for free because I am being gracious to you. It is by grace that I am giving it to you. I am the one who's being gracious. Gracious is modifying me. It's talking about me. So when we talk about grace, we're talking about God. God is the one who is gracious. God is the one who is merciful. God is the one who is kind. Grace is not a substance. Grace is something that describes God's attitude towards us as being gracious. Does that make sense? So when we talk about grace, you can't divorce it from God and turn it into it basically turn it into some kind of substance apart from God. That's not it at all. Okay. So let me read this again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared righteous by God's grace as a gift. Now, are we saying, I mean, according to Paul, is the grace of God synonymous with the forgiveness of sins? Yeah, actually it is. Because it's through the forgiveness of sins that we have 
this right standing before God, that we are declared righteous in God's sight. It's by his grace. So what is grace? By the way, the Greek word for grace here is charis. Let me uh, let me pull this up in my Greek. Uh, let me see here. Charis, it's the, that's the Greek word here. Let me read some of the definitions here. A winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction. Graciousness or charm or winsome, a, benefic- uh, a beneficent disposition towards somebody. This is the one that, that comes into, ca- into account here. A beneficent, that's kind, disposition towards somebody. Favor, grace, graciousness, care, goodwill. You can think of grace as the unmerited favor of God. God has it, having a kind disposition towards us, or we experiencing God's favor and graciousness, not because of something we have done, but on account of what Christ has done on the cross. These are all biblical ways of discussing grace. But if you listen to what Ortberg is doing here, and you listen to uh, what Dallas Willard is, is doing here, these two guys are trying to deconstruct the biblical definition of grace and replace it with a non-biblical, Christian-ish sounding definition of grace it's more in line with the spiritual disciplines that they're selling which are basically repackaged legalistic uh, roman catholic mysticism we continue yes and so that really the only people who need grace are people who are unforgiven sinners okay let me back this up so we can keep keep the context here i want you to hear what he's doing to some of us were talking yesterday i grew up with the idea that grace was just a synonym for the forgiveness of sins. Yes. And so that really the only people who need grace are people who are unforgiven sinners. Well, I know that that's true. And I've heard leading ministers in our country here say that the only role of grace is guilt and forgiveness. Uh, that is an incredible misreading that you would get corrected if you just did so that's so guilt and forgiveness is an incredible misreading of the Bible as it pertains to grace. Really, I just read Romans chapter three, twenty four and twenty five, which says that we are declared righteous in God's sight by His grace. Did I misread the passage? Oh, inductive Bible study with grace, you would find almost immediately that it that it's for life, not for forgiveness. It's for enabling... Oh, so grace is for life. It's not for forgiveness. By the way, what he's doing here, this is an artificial split, okay? Uh, What's the famous saying, divide and conquer? By the way, there are passages in the Bible that talk about grace in such a way that God gives us his grace and favor in order to get through the, the trials and tribulations of everyday life. But again, grace isn't stuff. Grace describes God's disposition towards us as a result of Christ's work on the cross. So it's for our salvation, and it also is it, grace is provided for us in light of our daily living out of our faith. God gives us the grace. God is gracious towards us in his favor towards us in the trials and the tribulations that we endure. But that's his favor towards us, his kindness towards us. It isn't a stuff. Grace has a place from which it originates. 
And every time in Scripture it talks about grace, it's originate that grace originates in the very being and essence of God himself and his disposition towards us, which is only kind and gracious as a result of what Christ has done on the cross. ...us to live in such a way that God is a part of our lives and helping us to lead the life that he wants for us. Uh, the sinner uh, is not the one who uses a lot of grace. The saint uses more grace. Listen to how he's describing the term. The so, it's ba basically, grace is something you can consume now. Saint burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. Because so grace is now a fuel that we burn like a 747. No, it isn't. It isn't a stuff. Grace talks about God's attitude towards us. Because everything they do is a manifestation of grace. And grace, you know, there's... We're not running out of grace. You know, it's, uh, there's lots of it. <laughs> and uh, so we can use it. But we have to learn to do that, and primarily it means that we no longer just trust our own efforts to manage our lives. That's our kingdom. And unfortunately, it turns to be a part of a darker kingdom. And then when, as Colossians 1 says, we are transformed or translated out of the kingdom of, of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love, and that's what happens at the new birth, then we begin to experience grace for the, for the first time. Wow. That's completely convoluted and a completely different gospel, which, by the way, that kind of reminds me. I think Patricia King has something that she would Yeah, Patricia King would like to put her bid in on this uh, teaching, by the way. She thinks she has a, a greater amount that she can add to it. So thank you, Mr. Auctioneer. We'll, we'll, we'll take the bid from Patricia King now. Thank you. Yeah, okay. So uh, here's Patricia King chiming in. On almost the identical theme here, why is it that Patricia King and Dallas Willard sound so much alike? Hi there. You know, a lot of times when uh, we talk about salvation, people think, oh, well, yeah, you know, I asked Jesus to forgive me my sins, and now I'm forgiven, and, and I belong to him. I feel a big butt coming. Remember, many times in a sentence, the word butt erases the thing in front of it. Which is right. That's absolutely right. It's awesome. It's glorious. It's over the top, you know, exciting. Yeah. But there it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, some salvation, you know, forgiveness of sins going to heaven. Yeah, that's great. But salvation is more than just having your sins forgiven and given a ticket into heaven. The word salvation. She sounds just like Dallas Willard. In the New Testament, it encompasses like health for your body, soul, and spirit. It encompasses deliverance and freedom. See, her bid, she's bidding higher than Willard and Ortberg. I mean, she's offering us, well, health and prosperity. I don't think Ortberg and, uh, and Willard were exactly laying this offer on the table here. Prosperity and just everything that pertains to off-the-charts kingdom life. So the moment you come into Christ... All of that is available to you. All the promises of God are yes and amen. And so when you realize I'm saved from, it's not just from your sin.
It's not just, oh, I'm saved from my sin and I'm forgiven. I'm saved from sickness and disease. I'm saved from poverty. I'm saved from depression. I'm saved from bondage. You can save me from depression? No way. I'm feeling happier already. I'm saved from sadness. I'm saved. I'm rescued from everything that, that wasn't invested into me when creation began. You see, when God created you in the very, very beginning where there was no sin, everything was glorious. There was fullness of joy in the presence of God. There was, there was nothing to resist love. I mean, it was perfect, perfect, perfect environment. Well, you've been saved from everything that resists that. Isn't that amazing? You know, what's amazing is that you were able to make all of those statements without backing it up from a single passage in the Bible. I bet if I opened my Bible, I wouldn't find that teaching there. <laughs> Folks, there's a reason why Patricia King and Dallas Willard sound like they're selling pretty much the same thing. The reason why is, is that both of them have something fundamentally in common. And the thing that they fundamentally have in common is a denial of sola scriptura and a belief that they are receiving direct messages and direct revelation from God. They are both, to use the classic term here, enthusiasts. They don't believe in sola scriptura. And as a result of them, both of them are getting messages from the spirit realm, if you would, and uh, and are supplanting those so-called messages from the spirit world and putting them on top of and, 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 and using that to be the lens by which they read the Bible. They're enthusiasts. They don't believe in sola scriptura. Both of them are mystics. Is it any wonder that they both come up with pretty much the same ideas regarding Oh, you know, the salvation thing, you know, it's not just that you were saved. It's that you you can have heaven here on earth. Yeah, the Bible doesn't teach that. And this is a basically an over-realized eschatology. Totally. You know, yes, there are promises in the scripture that do promise that all of our needs will be eternally met by our Father, our God, our, our God in heaven. But this is not inaugurated here and now while we still cling to and have our mortal bodies, we all still get to experience death, if you would. All of these promises that the that you know of of that is really realized at the second coming of Christ when Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, and we live with him for eternity in uncorruptible bodies. The Bible does not promise you heaven on earth, doesn't promise you perfect health, perfect wealth on this side of the resurrection. And the reason why Patricia King, John Ortberg, and Dallas Willard all sound the same is because all of them are enthusiasts and all of them get extra biblical information from the so-called spiritual realm. And they're not getting it from God. This is contra what the Bible teaches. We're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. 
If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy frenzy turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, President and Founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They are designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit CARM.org, that's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount. this up here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon 
reviewing service. <clears throat> Today's sermon, if you can call it that, comes to us via the journey. Pastor Carrick Thomas presiding. And like I've told you, it's movie preaching season here at the seeker-driven churches. So the sermon is on, well, um, the A-Team. Yeah. Now, the journey, by the way, is a seeker-driven church in Manhattan. It's in New York City. A couple years ago, I think the journey took a couple months off during the summer. And rather than doing that, they now just preach on... <clears throat> movies. Let me kill this music. So without any <laughs> further ado, uh, I know you've been dying to hear a move, uh, you know, a manly sermon, you know, on the A team. They, uh, by the way, um, <clears throat> uh, the week before the A team sermon, uh, they preached on sex in the city too. And uh, yeah, they, it was the name of the sermon was sex in the city Two: sex and my self image. Yeah, because the Bible is just chock full of stuff about your self-image. Not really, but anyway, so um, uh, here's uh, the A-team choosing right when I've been wronged. In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they did not commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles Underground. Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem and you can find them, if no one else can help and you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. Now, that was the opening line from the 1980s TV show, The A-Team, that has been turned into one of the summer's biggest blockbuster movies of, of the year. And I have to admit, when I... Now, here's the question. <laughs> ah! Already, I'm just... My, head, my eyes are rolling. My head is spinning. Oh, good night. <clears throat> spoken with the same manliness as uh, the guy who did the uh, the warrior sermon. Jesus is a warrior. <sighs> <clears throat> yeah, it, it, who cares if it was a blockbuster? This is not appropriate material for a sermon. Now, keep in mind um, what we've noticed in the past with these seeker-driven guys is that when they preach on movies. It's usually the quintessential bait and switch. Oh, look how relevant we are. We're preaching about the movie The A-Team. And some guy in New York City is going, Hey, you know they're preaching about The A-Team over there at The Journey. Yeah, we should better go check that out. Well, you know, you, that sounds so relevant. And so they get in there, and the pastor, I mean, he starts off by... The, talking about the A team, and you know, and it begins. The sermon begins with the intro, at least the words to the intro to the the A team. Crack commando team arrested for a crime they didn't commit, and they now got went to the Los Angeles underground. If you need, you know, the soldiers of fortune. <clears throat> I I just don't think that this is going to lend itself to a biblical theme. So look for the bait and switch. Now that they've got people there because they're so relevant, uh, let's see what happens. 
I was a kid, I loved the A-team. I loved watching the A-team. And perhaps my favorite part of the A-team is... Yeah, I was in junior high. The, the A-team was great when you were in junior high. Hello, we're adults now. <sighs> the A-team... Yeah, I'm sorry. I just remember watch as a junior high kid watching the A-team and the Dukes of Hazard. If you've ever caught reruns of either of them from the original series... Neither of them is very entertaining for an adult. It's different than, than the movie that, that just came out. But the, my favorite part of the TV show, The A-Team, was that The A-Team, the guys would always get back at the bad guys and blow them up or whatever. But no one ever got hurt. There was a lot of violence. They had weapons or huge explosions. But no one was ever killed or, or ever got hurt. Now, the movie's a little bit different. But that's what happened in the TV show. In fact, I've got a clip I want you to see from the opening of The A-Team. Exactly what happens and how there's there's uh, there's no violence. Take a look. I mean, how there's violence, but no one gets hurt. Take a look at this. It starts with a machine gun fire, and uh, there's a team falling over. But they, they don't get hurt when that happens. Uh, look, there's a need to remind you all. This is a sermon. Another machine gun and a grenade being thrown. Again, another car being blown up. Nobody's in it. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure you nobody got hurt. A tank and the bad guys don't get hurt. They got a flamethrower blowing up another car. And uh, and coming up here, I think there's a, uh, a homemade bazooka that's going to blow up another car. But you see, nobody gets hurt. And that's the thing I always loved about the 18. A lot of violence, but there was no one hurt. Don't you wish your life was like that sometimes? If someone does something to you, you're treated unfairly or they hurt you unfairly, that you could get back at them. Maybe not with a homemade bazooka, but you could get back at them by what you say or what you do, and then there would be no repercussions and no one would get hurt. Oh. <laughs> ay, 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 I'm just dying here. Okay, so let me see if I have this straight, Carrick. <laughs> you are preaching on movies, and you're preaching on the A-Team, and so because the entire storyline of the A-Team doesn't lend itself to any biblical preaching, you have to pull out of your bag of tricks uh, an observation regarding the 1980s television show, The A-Team, and that was even though there was military-style violence, no one ever really got hurt. And now you're taking that little thing and transitioning this into now something that represents kind of more or less a moralistic, Bible-ish type of sermon. <clears throat> By the way... The bait-and-switch has now officially taken place. Good night. But life isn't like that, is it? You see, when we get hurt by the actions or by the words of another person, and we decide to hold the grudge or, or to get back at them, oftentimes it just ends with more hurt and more resentment on our part. You see, today we're continuing with our God on Film teaching series. And uh, we're going to be looking at, at the, the movie The A-Team and Doing Right When I've Been Wrong. And throughout this series, we're looking at eight of the summer's biggest blockbuster movies. And it's a big spiritual theme behind each one. Eight blockbuster movies and the spiritual theme. Yeah, but he's not actually preaching about any of the spiritual themes in the movie. He's not telling you the truth. He's done a bait and switch. He's done the old switcheroo. Yeah, I noticed that when you look at the television show from the 80s, no one ever got hurt. And so now we're going to... Oh, good night.
And the strongest spiritual theme, I think, in the A-team is here you have a, a group of guys who were unfairly convicted of a crime they didn't commit. But instead of just getting angry, instead of just getting revenge, instead of, you know, turning bad, they end up helping people who are in need, helping the powerless and, and, and those who don't have anybody that will stand up for them. They turn out to be pretty good guys. Now, here's the truth. We've all faced tough situations where we were wronged by someone unfairly. Whether it was an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend, whether it was our spouse, whether it was a friend, it was a coworker or our boss at work, maybe it was a parent. Maybe we were hurt long ago uh, by a parent. Some some people here I know have dealt with abuse, and every time we're we're hurt unfairly, we have a choice to make. And that- so every time we're hurt unfairly, we have a choice to make. We could either strike back, or we can become soldiers of fortune in the Los Angeles underground. And the choice is how are we going to respond? Fortunately, the Bible has a lot to say about this. So go ahead and pull out your message notes. And those of you here in Manhattan, those of you joining us in Brooklyn and in, in Queens, pull out your message notes. And I want you to look at the, the verse at the top of your outline. You see, Jesus had a disciple and his name was Peter. And Peter had a problem with forgiveness. He had a, he had a temper anger problem. In fact, the night that Jesus was arrested before he was... Peter had an anger problem? And Jesus didn't put him into anger management classes? crucified, Jesus pulled out, I mean, Peter pulled out his sword and lopped off the ear of one of the soldiers. He had a temper problem. He wasn't very good at forgiving. So it's... What? How do you know that Peter cutting off the ear of Malchus uh, didn't happen uh, because Peter was trying to defend himself? Does the scripture say that the reason why Peter cut off his ear was because he had an anger management problem and because he had a bad temper? Oh, man. It's really interesting that it's Peter that comes to Jesus with this question. Look in your notes, Matthew chapter 18. It says, Then Peter came to to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, Jesus replied, Seventy times seven. Now, it's interesting here. Why does Peter say seven times? Jewish tradition said that you should forgive someone if they hurt you three times. And after that, you, you're okay to get revenge. You're okay to get vengeance. And so Peter comes up and says, I'm going to take the number three. I'm going to double it and then add one. And I'm going to seem like a very forgiving, kind-hearted person. So he comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, trying to look good. How many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? And expecting he would be rewarded. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Turn your Bible, Matthew chapter 18. Get there right now. I'll be there in a second. Now, for those of you who are bad at math, that's 490 times. And I know some of you right now have a chart and you're like, all right, well, this person's already hurt me 476 times, so I'm almost there. But listen, there's nothing magical about 490. What Jesus is saying here is you should forgive someone who hurts you an unlimited number of times, no matter how many times that they hurt you. Now, why is that? Could it be because Christ died on the cross for all of our sins? Could it have anything to do with the cross, Carrick? Why is forgiving someone when they've wronged us so important? Well, for one thing, it's important because you are never more like your creator. You are never more like God than when you forgive someone who's hurt you. Because if you think about it, when God God forgives us of all of our sins, when we accept him, he forgives us of all the times we've turned our back on him. So we're never more like God than... Okay, that was a full-blown, unexpected, but there, gospel nugget. 
the gospel came in and flew right out really quickly. We don't get a lot of gospel nuggets anymore. <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad we got one. Then when we're forgiving someone else, that's when we're acting like God. But there's another reason as well. When we're hurt, we have a choice. But there's another reason. When we're hurt, we have a choice. That's why it was a gospel nugget, because it came in and just flew right out. It's not even really a primary point. It's just, oh, and by the way, it's the reason why is because this, this, and then shoom, it's gone. We have a choice. We can forgive the person who hurt us, and we can move forward and move on in life. Or we can hold on to that hurt. We can seek revenge, and we can stay where we are. But you need to understand you can't do both. You can't both hold on to the hurt and get revenge and move forward into God's best plan for your life. You can't move forward into God's best plan for your life? Um, Is that supposed to be a major theme here in the Bible? Having God's best plan for your life? (sighs) Matthew 18. I want to point something out here. He read this verse out of context. Well, let's put it back in context. Now, there's not a huge deviation, but it's important to read these things in context. I am not a fan of taking a verse here, taking a verse there, and stringing them together like they're little pearls and, you know, and then put it on as a necklace. God's word is not an accessory. Okay. It's the main thing. It should be the primary focus, uh, uh, of the sermon. In fact, the sermon needs to be based on and grounded in the the scriptures and teaching us what the scriptures teach, what God has said, what he has revealed. Matthew chapter 18, by the way, our three rules for biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. Okay, so uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 7, woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and then be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye uh, than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Now, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or as a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two, uh, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Well, then Peter came up and said to him, Well, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As, as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is a huge amount of, this is, this is, uh, this is an economy. This is the size of an economy of an, of a small nation, 10,000 talents of gold. Good night. Talent being about a hundred pounds. And since he could not pay his master, could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Uh, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, keep in mind, you sitting there, what about penal substitution? <clears throat> It's in here. How? Real simple. Who ends up having to carry the burden of the debt? The king. This schlub who couldn't pay, he gets off scot-free and the king has to absorb the loss. There's the substitution. Okay. When the servant went, okay, now say out of pity, okay, forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. It's like a month's wages. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. Now at this point, the servant should have stopped and said, you know, this looks really familiar. Where did I see this before? Oh, I know. I was that guy just a few minutes ago, and I was forgiven. But no, he doesn't forgive. Okay. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, something I want to point out here. Carrick took this passage out of context. And he made the gospel, it basically, we got the gospel nugget. It came in and went out. The reason why we should forgive, well, number one is, well, well you know, we're forgiven of all of our sins. But number two, number two is is because um, uh, because if you don't forgive, then you can't have the best life that God has for you. 
Um, where in Matthew 18 does it say anything about having God's best life for you or, or living whatever is the best that God has in store for you? It isn't there at all. So what he's done is he's taken the the actual focus of this passage and made it a sub point, and then it turned it into something that was moving so fast that if you blinked, you would have missed it, the actual gospel. And now we're off on a bunny trail tangent that isn't even taught in the Bible, yet alone in the passage that, you know, in, in Matthew 18, which is you know, apparently where he found this incredible a-team spiritual nugget that he's preaching about. We continue. In fact, the famous college football coach, Lou Holtz, said this. He said, you'll never get ahead of anyone as long as you're trying to get even with them. And I think that's true. You can't do both. And so today I want us to look at a story from the Bible. In fact, most of the messages during this series, we have a story from the Bible that is, is a parallel story for the, the movie we're looking at. Yeah, so the A-team has a parallel story in the Bible. Soldiers of Fortune. Yeah, okay. <sighs> mm, let me think about this. Um, well, you could kind of come up with something similar from David. Uh, okay. And uh, this story in the Bible is, is really about what I call the original A-team. And uh, this A-team was just as wild. They did just as many crazy things as, as the movie, a, the A-team the, the in the movies. Really, there's an A-team in the Bible that did all the crazy things. They were just like the A-team in the Bible. Now I have no idea who you're talking about. I was thinking maybe it be David's Mighty Men of Valor. But they didn't do crazy things. They weren't. uh. But uh, it was 3,000 years ago. Let me give you a little background. Uh, The king of Israel was Saul. And Saul had been chosen by God to be king of Israel. All right. It is David's mighty men of valor. But he had turned his back on God, and so God sort of rejected him as king. And so instead of allowing Saul's son, Jonathan, to become the next king of Israel, God taps the shoulder of a young boy named David. All right, that makes Saul mad enough that he's not going to be, uh, the next king is not going to be a son, it's going to be David. So he's upset about that. But then what happens is David begins to grow. He becomes a great warrior that the people love. I mean, you know, David killed Goliath, but even as he grew, he became one of the best generals in Saul's army. And people actually sang a song. And the song went like this, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And so Saul would come into court and people would sing, Saul has killed a thousand, David has killed ten thousand. You know, that's probably not the tune they used, but this drove Saul crazy. David was taking everything from him, so he got mad. And so Saul one day takes a spear and tries to kill David. And then after that, David and, and a group of people loyal to him went on the run, and Saul took off after him to kill him. That's where our story picks up in 1 Samuel 24 with what I call the original A-team. It's a long passage. I bet you have not been calling this the original A-team your entire life, Carrick. That would just be my guess. But I'd be willing to put a buck on it. So follow along in your notes as I read it out loud. Now it says this, beginning in verse 3. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Now, in case you're wondering what that means, it means exactly what you think it means. Saul had to relieve himself. He had to do number two. And uh, you think about it, you know, he's, he's the king. He's leading the army. He has to go to the bathroom. And he doesn't want to lose the, the majesty of being king. So he has to go find a place that's hidden. So he sneaks down, finds a cave, and there he is going to the bathroom. 
Then it continues. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding in that very cave. Now, how would you have liked to have been one of David's men in that cave? You're hiding behind a rock, and all of a sudden, the king that's chasing you comes in. Like, you know what I don't like about this? We're, I mean, literally, we're just parachuted into this story, and he's not really giving us much of a backstory. Keep in mind, David in the Old Testament is the quintessential prefigurement, the, the quintessential look at Jesus Christ, our shepherd king. He, at this point, he's the anointed king of Israel. David isn't just being pursued by a madman. He's being pursued by a man who wants to kill him because Saul has disobeyed God. And God has said, I'm done with you, Saul. I'm washing my hands of you. And he, God sends the, the prophet Samuel to anoint David as the king of Israel while the, there is a sitting king on the throne. This is a this is a picture of Christ in a lot of ways. <sighs> you know, we, we don't even oh man, he's just messing this story up too. But it's the 18 because you know, Jesus and his mighty men of valor, they were just like uh, BA Baracus and 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 and, and you know, ugh. Like, there's King Saul. What's he doing in the cave? Why is he taking his robe off? Oh, man. I mean, you know, you sort of have that, that sense. But that's not what they thought. This is what they thought. Look at verse 4. This is what they said. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today is the day the Lord was talking about when he said, I will certainly put Saul into your power to do, it, to do with as you wish. Then David crept forward and cut off a piece of Saul's robe. He had taken off his robe, probably laid it over a rock. But David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. Verse 6. Then the Lord knows I shouldn't have done it, he said to his men. It's a serious thing to attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David sharply rebuked his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, why did you listen to the people? Why do you listen to people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day, you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. And some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said I will never harm him. He is the Lord's anointed one. Verse 11. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. Then in verse 12, the Lord will decide between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me. But get this part. But I will never harm you. Underline that phrase. I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. Listen, there are serious consequences when we, when we respond with evil, when evil has been, has been done to us, when, when we choose wrong, when we've been wrong. Now, under, understand, you can make the choice to, to respond to evil with more evil. You have free will. You can get revenge, but that's going to lead you to a bitter bitter life. It's going to lead you to a less than life, a life that's less than what God has planned for you. It's going to lead you to a less than life. Oh, that just sounds terrible. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if you read Matthew 18 and uh, what Jesus says of the unforgiving servant, he didn't say, oh, this is terrible. He's living a less than life. No, 
He called him out on his wickedness, reinstated the debt, and had him and his family thrown in prison into hell. You would. Uh, yeah, I mean, here, um, this is terrible. I mean, yeah, you know, if you if you return evil with evil, then you'll be living a less than life. Yeah. See, I remember what what was it? It was kindergarten, first grade. You learned less than. Greater than, greater than or equal to, less than or equal to, or equal to. Because there's an old saying, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves, one for the other person and one for yourself. So let's, let's go the opposite way from revenge. Let's look at, look at how to choose right, even when we've been wrong. So open up your message notes to the inside, and let's look at how to choose right when I've been wrong. Now... Just to be, to be honest, most Americans, we realize the importance of forgiveness, how important it is. 84%, uh, I'm sorry, 94% of Americans say that it's important to forgive. But in that same study, 85% of Americans say they don't know how. 85% of Americans say they need help in forgiving someone who has hurt them. So right now, I want us to... Okay, please, if you're going to be talking about forgiveness, can we focus on the cross? Focus on the cross, please, please, please. I don't know what's going to happen at this point. I haven't, I really, I just listened to the beginning minutes of this sermon. I don't know where this is going to land. I mean, but don't you think if we're going to talk about not returning evil with evil, that we could talk about what Jesus did on the cross? This would be a perfect place for the gospel. Maybe he'll bring it up. Maybe, maybe. Let's hope. I'm, I'm going to think positive thoughts here and hope for the best. Look at how we can do that. And I want you to think about your own life. Right now, I want you to picture in your mind a wound that is open, a wound that is fresh, a pain or a hurt that's in your life. I want you to think about a person who has has hurt you, a hurt that you've been unable to let go. And I want us to go to the Bible with that hurt to find out how to do right. What is this victim mentality? Hello? Well, the Bible talks about sinners, people who are perpetrators, uh, the people who've done wrong, done bad, done evil, you know, broken God's law, committed sins, you know, perps, you know, things done wrong to me. Oh, man. Sure, people have hurt me. I've hurt other people. And I, not only that, I have transgressed the law of God. Can we? Uh, uh. Even though that you've been wrong, not for the other person's sake, but for your sake. And here's the first step in doing this. How to choose right when I've been wrong. Number one, recognize that an opportunity for revenge is not from God. That's a lot to write down, but write it down. Recognize that an opportunity for revenge is not from God. Oh, man. Now, here's the truth. The opportunity for revenge, to take a pot shot, to say something bad, to hurt someone's reputation, it's never from God. No matter how juicy it is, no matter how bad the other person hurts you, you need to understand, and, 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 and you can say it with me, it's not from God. In fact, say it with me. Are you ready? It's not from God. Again, it's not from God. One more time. It's not from God. An opportunity for revenge that comes into your life, it's not 
from God. And a lot of times we think it is because you see, David, he had the perfect opportunity to take his revenge out on King Saul in, in, in the cave. I mean, think about the odds of King Saul choosing to go to the bathroom in the cave where David is hiding with his men. And that's an opportunity David could have justified in his mind. The fact that, that Saul came into this cave must be God's way of telling me it's okay for me to assassinate the king and to kill him right now. And he would have become king had he done that. But David. Yeah, keep in mind, he was the anointed king of Israel. David chose to live by a higher standard. Look at what Romans 12, 19 says in your notes. It says, dear friends, never avenge yourselves. Underline that word, never. You know, the Greek word used here for never, do you know what it really means? It means never. It means never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God. For it is written, I will take vengeance. I will repay those who deserve it, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Now listen, when you take revenge and get back at someone and you get the last word, I mean, you get them back, I want you to understand that's it. That's your reward. That's your justice. Because what you did is you just took that situation out of God's hands. You put it in your hands. And every every chance you had for God to bless you, for God to be on your side, it's gone. God's not going to bless your life. And God's not going to bring justice to the other person because you took that out of God's hand. So if you get your revenge, you better enjoy it because that is all that you're going to get. You see, David went on to become the greatest king in Israel's history. In fact, he was described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Now, he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes like, like we all do. You mean sins. He committed sins like we all do, right? You know, the whole Bathsheba murdering uh, her husband, committing adultery incident. Was that a mistake? But if he had chosen revenge here, yeah, he would have become king earlier, but God's hand would not have been upon his life. He wouldn't have received God's blessing. I mean, think about that. Think what would have happened had David chosen to kill Saul in that cave. I think it would have been a made-for-TV moment, you know, because that's what would have happened had this been a movie, right? He would have killed him in the cave, and then David would have come out of the cave, and he would have been holding Saul's head, and he would have been the new king of Israel. That's, that's the way Hollywood would have done it, right? But two things would have happened. Two problems. Number one, this is an important truth we need to know. How you gain power is how you're going to lose power. If David had decided to assassinate the king... Other people would have noticed, hey, it was pretty easy for David to become king. He just killed the king and became king. What would have happened to him? He would have been beheaded and somebody else would have become king. You see, the same is true for our life. How you gain power at work, how you climb the ladder. So he's preaching karma here. This is karmic Bible preaching. At work, the people you step on, how you step on people. That's the same way they're going to step on you when they pass you to climb up. That's the same way you're going to be pushed down. How you got your current girlfriend and boyfriend by, by cheating on somebody or pushing them out of the way, that's the same way that you're going to be cheated on, the same way you're going to be pushed to the side. How you gain power is how you're going to lose power. And so that was one truth. The second thing is his reputation. What would people have thought about David had he assassinated the king the way he did? I, I mean, they wouldn't, in reality, since he was the anointed king, I don't think a lot of people would have thought less of him. In fact... His mighty men of valor were pretty cheesed off at David for not taking the opportunity to let Saul have it. Oh. Imagine it later on. I imagine David is an old man and his grandkids gathered around. He's like, gather around, grandkids. Let me tell you how your grandpa became king of Israel. And they're like, yeah, tell us again, uh, grandpa. And he says, well, you know, we were hiding in a cave and, and the king came in and he, he was going to use the bathroom. Did he carry a lot of weapons? No, he didn't have any weapons. And then he took his clothes off and I snuck up behind him. Did you have a big fight? No, I, I pretty much just stabbed him in the back while he was using the bathroom. Oh, grandpa, you're so brave. I mean, what kind of story, what kind of story is that? You know, that would ruin someone's reputation. And
Yeah, I mean, when you really think about it, boy, I wouldn't want to have to tell that story. Yeah, because you, oh, that would be such a bane. And revenge will do that to you. Now, I'm making the assumption that all of us at some point have been wronged. And at some point, all of us want to strike back, to get payback. And we dream about, about this, don't we? There's something within all of us that longs to hurt the person who hurt us. In fact, the simple definition of revenge is this. The desire to pay back evil for evil because I believe it will cause my pain to be lessened. That's what revenge is. Paying back evil with more evil because I think it will lessen the pain that I'm feeling. But that's not what happens. You see, fixating on the other person who hurt us, getting them back and hurting them, it doesn't lessen the pain. Oh, this is therapy. This is driving me nuts. It traps us in that same pain. It keeps us from moving on to something better. You see, when we are wronged, it hurts. And some of you have experienced some, some horrible things at the hands of others that, that w- it wasn't fair and it was just wrong. And, and as a pastor, I've had to hear some of those stories from people in our church, how they've been hurt by others. And listen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's happened. And, and it breaks my heart to hear that. And it breaks God's heart to hear it as well. And I know that it seems to make sense that when someone hurts you badly, that you just want to hold on to that hurt. You want to, you want to simmer and you want to hold on to that hurt and then you want to get back at them. That seems to make sense, but it doesn't make things better. Charlotte Bronte said of revenge, something of vengeance I had tasted for the first time. As aromatic wine it seemed on swallowing, warm and racy, but its after flavor, metallic and corroding, gave me a sensation as if I had been poisoned. In other words, revenge tastes sweet going down, but in the end, it's a poison that kills you and eats you up from the inside out. In other words, all an eye for an eye does is make the entire world blind. Let God give the other person what they deserve. Refuse to retaliate for for your best, for your future. God will take care of it. Look at what our next verse says. Refuse to retaliate for your best, for your future. Yet Jesus in Matthew 18 says about, talks about forgiving because you've been forgiven and forgiving from the heart. A second uh, Thessalonians 1.6, it says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. So number one, recognize that an opportunity for revenge isn't from God. Then flip over. Number two, release my personal pain. Release my personal pain. You know, it's interesting, while David is in the cave with Saul, he decides not to take revenge. Release my personal pain. We're called to forgive, not release. Forgive. There's, oh, man. (sighs) Matthew 18, 34. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Not release your pain, forgive. This is therapy when what is needed is Christ's forgiveness. But he does sneak up on Saul and cut off a corner of his robe. Did you notice that? Now what is that about? Why does he do that? You see, whenever you're hurt... That pain stays with you. And it doesn't matter if if you let the other person go. If you give up your right for revenge, that doesn't necessarily get rid of the pain. It doesn't necessarily get rid of the hurt that that stays with you. It still hurts. And there's some of you who are here today, you're, you're there right now. Maybe you're not thinking about revenge, but you're still dealing with the hurt 
uh, of someone uh, doing wrong to you. Now, one of the lessons we can learn from David is how to deal with that pain in an appropriate way. Because most of the time, let's be honest, when we're hurt, we don't respond in an appropriate way. We respond either by getting back and hurting someone else, or we get into unhealthy relationships, or we, we build up resentment, or we get into addictions like alcohol or drugs. We deal with the hurt in a destructive way, not in, in a good way. But David found something healthier. He found a way to release this personal pain. Then he discovered that the, that the solution is not in revenge, but in giving that pain to God. Look at the next, our next passage. It's our memory verse for today. Let's read it out loud uh, together. Those of you in Brooklyn and Queens as well. Find it in your notes, 1 Peter 5, 7. Are you ready? Go. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about what happens to you. Give, give your worries and cares to God. And you may say, well, Carrick, I don't want uh, to talk about my worries. Open your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 5. That was a sentence fragment. It might be a verse, but it's a sentence fragment. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus in Matthew 18 says, forgive. This verse from 1 Peter 5, is this about forgiving when we're wronged? Let's put it back in context. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a feller, fell, feller, <clears throat> as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called to you, called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So 1 Peter 5, 7 is not about releasing your anxieties when you're, when you're wronged. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. <sighs> yeah, it doesn't even remotely fit. We continue. I don't want God to know all the resentment that I have in my heart. I don't want him to know how much I still hate this other person or how much I really am struggling with this hurt. But let me let you in on a secret. God already knows. He knows your heart. He knows how you're struggling. He knows the resentment. But, I, but here's the thing. You still have a choice. 
Will you let him take that burden from you or will you keep it yourself? And that's the principle of the torn robe. This principle says that forgiveness always triumphs over vengeance. In fact, the principle of the torn robe? Okay. But I did hear forgiveness. Forgiveness triumphs over resentment. Okay. We got 15 minutes left on the sermon. We just might hear the gospel. Not going to hold my breath. I might pass out if I did that. But let's continue. In fact, write that down in your notes. Forgiveness always triumphs over vengeance. Always. See, the principle of the torn robe reminds us that we have to do everything we can to hand the pain that we're feeling over to God and give it to him. to. We have to do. We have to do. We have to do. That's law. Yeah, sorry, folks. That was the law. <clears throat> Control. You see, when David cut off the corner of Saul's garment, it was a reminder to him that he could have cut Saul off. I mean, he could have. It, it, it was something. For, it was a way for him to release the pain. Saul had hurt him. Saul was trying to kill him. But instead of killing Saul, he, he had, the, he had the, the proof there. He could have killed Saul, but instead he let Saul go. It was, it was a way, a path of healing towards, uh, for David. You see, to us it's a reminder that we can let go of our pain without actually hurting the other person. In fact, uh, I want you to find the post-it note that, that we put on the front of your program when you came in. On the front it says, The Principle of the Torn Robe. And this is your this is your torn garment. I want you to consider this to be the torn garment of the person who's hurt you, the person that's caused you the most pain in your life. And this is what I want you to do right now. On this post-it note, I want you to write down... Notice how he's allegorizing the text now. The, the principle of the torn robe. Now, see, here's your torn robe, and, and yeah, this is not how the Bible's to be used. On the name of the person who you've been thinking about, the person who's hurt you, the person who betrayed you, the person who's caused pain in your life. It could have been something small. It could be something big. It could be something you've held on to for a long time. It could be something that you're just frustrated with your roommate from this week. But I want you to write down a name. If you don't feel comfortable writing a name, write an initial. But the person who's caused you pain, let this be your torn robe, your way to, to, to release it. Because with David, there was something in the act. There was something about taking a part of, of Saul's robe that, that gave him freedom. And so I want you to do this right now. No, it didn't. If you read the passage, he was grief-stricken by the fact that he cut off a piece of the robe. It, he, the Cutting the robe off did not release David. He was grief-stricken over it. He felt guilt. Oh, my. And hold on to it. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do with it a little bit later. But the principle of the torn robe is a reminder that we can let go of our pain without hurting the other person. Now, there are other things you can do as well. You know, some people will write a letter and, and put all their grief in the letter and then never mail it. Some people pour out their heart to God in prayer. Uh, sometimes you can visit the site where you were hurt, the location where you were hurt, and leave it behind there. You can talk with a trusted friend. Maybe you can, sometimes people even need to consider seeing a Christian counselor to work. This is all therapy. This isn't forgiveness of sins. This is therapy. Work through their, their pain. You see, now what you need to see is seeking revenge is a trap. Because revenge doesn't deal with the pain. Revenge and the anger is just a diversion. You don't believe me. Think about a family that lost a loved one. Uh, someone was murdered. And think about a family, because you see this all the time, that they won't rest until they get justice, until they get vengeance, until the person who killed their loved one is put away forever or, or, or receives a death penalty. And they obsess about it. And, and then when justice is achieved, when, when they're put away for life or they're given the death penalty, do you know what happens to these families? 
They don't walk away feeling good. They don't walk away feeling like they've, the pain is gone. What's happened is this whole pathway of trying to get justice was just a diversion from really dealing with the pain of the loss. It didn't bring the person back. And so beginning then, they have to start all over and deal with the grief and deal with the pain. Vengeance is a diversion that keeps you dealing from dealing with the pain, the real issue. If you want to experience true healing, you have to turn it over to God. You have to let it go. And the torn robe is a reminder that forgiveness always triumphs over vengeance. To recognize that an opportunity for revenge is not from God. Release my personal pain. Then number three, write this down. Remember the true source of all wrongs. Remember the true source of all wrongs. So opportunities for revenge are not from God. you got to release whatever and then just remember the true source. What about forgiving from the heart? You talk about forgiveness, but you're doing it lip service. By the way, um, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 24, I want to read this, verse 3. Uh, and he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose stealthily and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5, And afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. There is no principle here. David felt terrible for doing it. Here's what I find especially interesting about David in our story. It's not personal with him. He doesn't hate Saul. Saul, King Saul hates him, but he never hates King Saul. He never stoops to Saul's level. He never lets evil or anger take over. In fact, David actually loved Saul. He actually felt sorry for him. In fact, we find out later when Saul is killed in battle with another country, David weeps. He goes into mourning because, because Saul is killed. David understood that it didn't help him to hate Saul. You see, we like David, we have to understand the true source of our hurt. We must see the, the real enemy when we've been wrong, not as the person who hurt us, but it's, it's evil. It's the sin in this world in which we live, and it's Satan himself. We can't blame God for this either. Ezekiel 16 says that the sinful nature of humanity is behind many of the problems and that, and that God hates human action when it causes hurt to other people. Look at what uh, Ezekiel 16:58 says. God says, this is your punishment for your terrible sins and for actions that I hate, says the Lord. God hates actions that cause harm to other people. Now understand, God didn't cause the harm or the hurt, to, or the hurt that you're experiencing at the hands of others. God hates that. And he wants to heal you. So we can't fall into the trap of blaming God for what another person does to us. We have to look at the real reason. And we're taught in Scripture that the real source, the real reason for our hurt is Satan. That he is out to destroy us. That he will use other people to hurt us. That he will whisper lies in our ears when we're hurting. And he'll say, it's God's fault. Or it's this other person. You need to get back at them. You need to hurt them. You'll feel better if you do that. And if he can keep us stewing in anger and resentment, he will. If he can make us feel like victims and feel sorry for ourselves, he will do that as well. Satan will do anything he can to rob us of real life. Look at what 1 Peter 5, 8 says. Describing Satan, he says, be careful. Watch out. Did you hear? Satan apparently is going around trying to rob us of real life. Yeah, if only that were the extent of what he was trying to rob us of. Oh, good night. Shout for attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. 
Listen, understand if someone hurts you, the real need isn't for revenge. The real need is for the person who hurt you to find a Savior, for them to find Jesus, for Him to come into their life. Because, and this is important, hurt people hurt people. So release the other person. Free them. And if you free them in doing so, you're going to free yourself as well. And that leads us to our final step of how to choose right when you've been wrong. Flip over to the back of your notes and write this down. Relinquish the situation to God. Relinquish the situation to God. What about forgive from the heart like Jesus said? I, I, huh, this, this, is, this is a different religion. This is a psychotherapy self-help religion. This is not forgiveness. This is not absolution. You know, in talking about the principle of the torn robe, I mentioned the importance of turning your hurt and turning your pain over to God. Now, I'm not talking about just your hurt and pain. I'm talking about giving the situation to God, giving God not just the pain, but giving God the other person, giving God the circumstances and the situation, giving it all to him. You see, God can turn an ugly situation into something that reveals his glory, mercy, and love for you and for the person who hurt you. And we've got to pray that God would fill us with compassion and with mercy towards those who offend us so, so that God's will, so his best can be worked out, not just in their life, but in our life as well. And I'm reminded of this uh, by something that happened in the news just a couple of weeks ago. Armando Galarraga is the pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. I don't know if some of you saw this, but a couple of weeks ago, he was one out away from throwing a perfect game. And a perfect game meaning that 27 batters came up to the plate and he got all 27, 27 of them out. No hits, no walks, no errors. It was a perfect game. And to tell you how rare that is, in the 130-year history of Major League Baseball, only 20 pitchers have thrown a perfect game. And here he is, one out away from it. And it would secure him in the Hall of Fame. They would, you know, they would always talk about him throwing a perfect game. So the last batter's up. He throws the pitch. It's a ground ball to first base. The pitcher goes, uh, Armando Galarraga goes to first base to cover. He catches the ball, steps on the bag. The guy is out for the perfect game. Only one problem. The umpire misses the call. I don't know if he was out of position. I don't know what happened. He wasn't even that close, but the umpire misses the call and calls him safe. It's an infield hit. The perfect game is gone. And then all heck breaks loose. The crowd is upset. The manager's yelling. Everybody's upset. They're calling for the, the umpire's name was Jim Joyce. They're calling for his job. Everybody's mad. In fact, the first front page of the New York Post, this happened in Detroit. The front page of the New York Post says, worst call ever, exclamation point. That's all the front page said. People were so upset about this. Until at the post-game conference, Armando Galarraga uh, uh, is asked about it, and he says, no, I'm not upset. In fact, Jim Joyce is one of the best umpires in the league, and I would be happy with him calling any game. It's not his fault. Nobody's perfect. Don't be mad at, at him. I can go out and play again tomorrow. And all of a sudden, with him saying that, all the anger, all the frustration, all, all the calls for his job seemed to subside. And it went away. It was a tremendous act of grace. But here's the thing. If you were to ask me, Carrick, can you name can you name the 20 pitchers who have thrown perfect games in the history of Major League Baseball? Do you know how many I could name? Zero. I could name one of for you right now. But this guy, Armando Galarraga, he'll be remembered for coming close, but mostly for the tremendous grace he showed in forgiving instead of being angry afterwards. Oh, boy. If we don't get to the gospel, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freak out. Please, Carrick, can we get off this therapy and get to real forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross? Please. What's your situation? 
Have you turned your circumstances over to God? Have you relinquished control of the thing that, that's causing hurt to God? Because when you do, God can take that bad thing and he can make it good. He can turn tears into hope. He can turn ashes into life. He can, he can turn crosses into resurrections. Oh. oh, that is just awful. We've turned the forgiveness of sins, Christ's death and resurrection, into basically hallmark moment greeting card sentimentality. He can turn crosses into resurrections. Oh, good night. But let me tell you what God cannot do. God cannot help you with the pain. God cannot help you with your situation if you're unwilling to turn your hurt and the entire situation over to him. Law, and this isn't even biblical law. Wow. Look at our next verse. It's Romans 8, 28. Let's read this out loud together. This is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. I want us to read it together. Are you ready? And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I want you to underline that word everything on the front line, first line. Carrick, are you telling me that if I love God, everything that happens in my life, God will work it out for good in my life? Notice, if I love God, then he'll work it out for good in my life. He's not even reading Romans in context here. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Who loves God? Only those who are saved by grace through faith. Back up, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, are we debtors? not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified him. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For this creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or stress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No one, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, put that verse back into its context, and it's not saying what this guy says. It says something far greater, something far more profound, deeper and true. Where is the forgiveness of our sins, Carrick? You only have a couple minutes left. Can you land on your feet? Can you bring us Christ and him crucified for our sins? Yes, that's what it says. Are you telling me when, when my friend stabs me in the back, God can take that and make it something good in my life? Yes. Are you telling me when my spouse is unfaithful to me and, 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 and leaves me, that God can turn that into something good in my life? That's what the verse says. Are you telling me that my parents, who, who didn't love me, who abused me, and I'm still dealing with the hurt and the regret from all that pain back there, are you telling me that God can take that hurt and turn it into something good? I'm telling you that God can if you will give it to Him. That is what the verse promised. Maybe you're here today. 
and you're holding on to a hurt. You've refused to let go of the situation. You haven't been able to forgive the person who hurt you, and you haven't been able to release the hurt. And that anger and pain is still very real. But here's what you've got to understand. Your anger, your pain, your desire for revenge, it's not hurting them. It's not hurting the person who hurt you. That's the, the tragedy. Our unforgiveness never hurts the person who hurts us. It only hurts us. The tragic irony is that by not forgiving the person who hurts us, by not letting them go, we give them continued power in our lives. They occupy our thoughts. They occupy our minds. And the person who hurts us that we don't want to forgive, by not forgiving them, they have the power to hurt us over and over and over and over again without even knowing it. Our unforgiveness gives them power over us. And we don't realize that. That's why... You have to turn it over to God and just give the person and the situation and the pain, give it to him and trust him with it. Choose to do right by the person who did wrong to you, not for them, but for you and for God. Now, listen, I know what I just said. It's not easy to do. It's not something that you can just do naturally, but it's not impossible. Look at our next verse, our last verse from Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Jesus looked at them intently and said, let's read this last part out loud together. Are you ready? Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. Man, this guy is just a veritable twist, Bible twister. He must have gone to the Rick Warren School of Hermeneutics. Uh, Matthew 19, 26. Boy, I mean, it it just sounds like, uh, look. Uh, with God, all things are possible. See? Da-da! Boy, is this out of context. Matthew 19. Oh, man. Um, Yeah. Um, Matthew 19, verse 16, we begin. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, why do you ask about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, well, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The young man said to him, well, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the context here? A rich person entering the kingdom of heaven. In case you missed the context, the context is a rich person entering the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Well, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. Yeah, put it in context, this is not a fortune cookie verse about all things are possible with God. You just need to put turn that frown uh, upside down and and let God turn your crosses into resurrections. It's, oh, that's ridiculous. Let's continue. It's possible for you to let go of that hurt. It's possible for you to get that person out of your mind. It's possible for you to be free from the pain, the regret, the shame, whatever it is that's holding you back. With God, it is possible to do right even when you've been wrong. Let's bow our heads and pray together. It's back. Done. Hmm. Wow. 
We got one bonafide, really fast-moving gospel nugget, and that was it. We heard a lot about forgiveness, and yet nothing about the cross. This was therapy. This was not biblical preaching. And I've taught the gospel enough in the sermon review that you should be able to see the difference. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to donate, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Wow. Preach on a movie and you miss the gospel. That's what I learned today, and it was bait and switch on top of it. What'd you think? Would love to get your uh, feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.